Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Hello to you and welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm Jay Hall and I am here with a special guest, president and CEO of the Greater Roxbury Arts and Culture Center, Tanisha Nash Laird. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I, I just want to say off the top, I knew this conversation was going to be good because as soon as I logged in, she said, Jay, have you heard of Imani Perry? And <laughs> you need to know her. Let's get the good. I'm like, okay, my type of person. Like I've already learned something in five seconds and I wrote it down and I'm going to have homework after this that I look forward to. So I just want to tell you, I appreciate that. Oh, um, listen, no problem. And you're going to enjoy what you find. Yeah. You got to love when knowledge is being passed by. How are you doing this night? I'm doing great. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I guess we'll get into it right now. Um, it's a. It's a break while I'm raising fifty million dollars, uh, <laughs> so it's a little stressful. But it's a welcome break. It's a welcome break. See, when you talk about fifty million dollars and raising it, <laughs> you gotta you gotta raise an eyebrow to that. And you're right. We are going to get into it. But I wanted to ask you when you first heard the word or the phrase. Nonprofit. What did you think then? You know, I didn't know a lot about nonprofits until I ran one. So my first uh, first time ever working at a nonprofit, I was the head of it. I was the executive director, and this is back in 2006. I was recruited to to be the head of that. But now I just know that nonprofit is, uh, as my attorney likes to say, a tax status. It's still a business. It's just a tax status, right? Um, it means that you're for the public good. Um, and so that's that's how I take it. But you're right. I did not know a lot about nonprofits until I was actually running one. Yeah, me either. When, the first time I heard nonprofit, it was when I found out that the NFL was considered a nonprofit up until like maybe seven years ago, six or seven years ago. And I was like, how is that possible? The NFL makes, they've gotten a lot of my money. How are they a nonprofit, right? And you start to learn these loopholes and these um, these things that companies do and things like that. But to find out that it was also an organization that's supposed to be about service that changed things for me, you know, in that, in that perspective. And later on, like you said, I ended up working for a couple of them. And I got a further understanding. What is it about community service that you could remember coming up that you value? Man, that's a great question. I think um, for me, it was always rooted in. Um, my culture. Um, when I was a college student, I remember going and asking if I could create my own minor uh, in Black economics, because that was something that really resonated with me. And um, later, you know, when you're in college, the professors are like up here. But, you know, later when I got a little older, I remember having that same professor who was my advisor in my actual home and to talk to him about how it was really meaningful to me to uh, to have him as a guide. Now, did I understand that being my interest in Black economics and my interest in service to my community, uh, mainly because, frankly, I, I was the child of, am the child of, uh, grandchild of sharecroppers, uh, my mother's siblings picked cotton. You know, she came to New York from the Jim Crow South uh, in the early 60s. All of that is part of my uh, DNA. Um, and I wanted to know more about that. And for me, the idea of service has been, how do I take, um, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of all these folks. How do I give back to the community and help 
other people be pulled out of poverty the way that I was. Because I will say, I grew up impoverished, but I still felt like I was very privileged just because of where I grew up impoverished. I grew up in Westchester County, north of the Bronx, I usually say, to contextualize it for folks. Um, And if my mom had just stopped a little bit south of that, right, um, we would have been the same poor, but it'd been a different kind of poor. So it was really this for me services, like how do I help other people get the social mobility that I was gifted with? That area, is that white, the White Plains area? Mm-hmm. I grew up okay. in White Plains. You grew up in White Plains. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I lived in New York twice and I actually been out to White Plains and I remember later on my friends who took me out, they was like, yeah, just get out country. Because... <laughs> That's I'm just telling you what they were saying. I'm just telling you what these when you catch that when you catch that long train out there, they was like, Yeah, we're going out to get out country. I was like, what's, what's get out country? You know, because the movie Get Out was out at the time. But, you know, it is when I got to know the place out there, it is different. You know, there you do see your sense of like poverty and you do see it's not all like roses and everything. And people have a thing that just because you don't live outside the city or just because you don't live in the city, all of a sudden you're privileged or you you like have a lot of money. That That's not what that means at all. What was your community like growing up in White Plains? So um, I didn't grow up in uh, affordable housing. I didn't grow up in, um, you know, the people that I knew who grew up in uh, what we call the projects, right? I didn't grow up in that. I grew up in uh, a working class neighborhood. Um, and so, again, from that perspective, um, I feel like, you know, my mom, you know, she was in service, right? She came to New York to be the help in Scarsdale and all that means. Um, so Scarsdale is another area in a very wealthy area of Westchester County. But I feel like I grew up um, around a lot of support. Um, I'm still friends with some of the people that I grew up with and I had the, the, the variety of friends. I had the, the wealthy friends and then I have the folks that grew up in the projects and, um, we, we had each other. Um, we were supportive. I mean, you had the typical things that you had in high school in terms of like clicks and all that, but I was a tigerette. So that probably helped, you know, for the football team. Right. Um, we had a dope. Uh, uh, marching bland. I mean, we were the folks that were paying five minutes of funk. I'm dating myself, but we played five minutes of funk. We did all of those things as part of our our cheering and and marching. So, I um I think about I think about that as like you know I was the girl who had a composition book with rhymes and rapping in the park, and so all of those things I think of very fondly now, especially now this year being the 50th anniversary of hip hop, especially. So I think very fondly of my childhood in white place. But I will tell you, at the time, I was always trying to escape. So I was the kind who wanted more hood. So I was, you know, my boyfriends came from, you know, uh, Queensbridge projects. They came from the, you know, all the city things. Yep, <laughs> I did all the city things. Um, I went to, you know, the Latin Quarter uh, Club and and um, and uh, Union Square and folks like that. But so at the time, I didn't necessarily have such an appreciation for being a suburban girl, and and you thought it was like a slur. But now I realize it was it was a really good good childhood. I appreciate it. I always feel like when you're a creative slash art kid, there's a special conversation teachers or parents have with you. Like I remember when my fourth grade teacher pulled me to the side and said, "Hey, you ever thought about being a writer?" 
you know, and I'm like, what's that? You know, I'm eight years old or whatever. What was your first experience or did you ever have that conversation when you realized that the art was within you? Ooh, so um, my first solo was for the Mayflower program. And uh, when I was in kindergarten, growing up in Elmsford, New York. So at a little time period while I was in Elmsford, I was, I was born in White Plains and came back to White Plains in fourth grade. Um, I played everything. Um, I had a really great teacher uh, at Alice E. Grady, uh, Mr. Williams. His his daughter went on to become very famous. Her name is Vanessa Williams. She became the first Black. Uh, yes, that one. But Mr. Williams really supported um, me. And I played uh, clarinet. No, I played recorder and then flute. I'm forgetting all the instruments. I, I did all of those things. And I have to say that my teachers were just like yours, were much more supportive of that because I guess my mom never really thought any of this stuff was like a real career. So even when I became, um, I was in something called the Westchester Arts Program, which was a pre-professional program. You had to audition to get into it. And I was the audition kid. I auditioned for singing. I auditioned for dance. I auditioned for everything. And um, at the time, they only wanted you to do like one thing. So I went in for dance and I went uh, to the State University of New York at Purchase College. So I always knew that it was something that was within me. And my mother indulged it from a creative perspective solely. But this idea of a career, uh-uh, no. <laughs> yeah, because I think sometimes we forget there was a time when your parents used to say, what are you going to do? Sit there and play video games all day long? You ain't going to no job like that. And now your kid can potentially make more money than you playing video games. <laughs> so we are now in that era. But you're right. That is how they kind of, even if the most supportive parent was still just more coming, at least I like to think it was coming from a concern point. Like, okay, well, how are you really going to provide for yourself doing this art thing? How did you take that throughout your academic life? college and stuff like that? Well, first I want to affirm what you just said, right? Because I think my mom, you know, my mother unfortunately died never making more, much more than minimum wage. So I think for her, it was like, I want to see you be successful and, and have more things that I was able to provide for you. Um, and I always get emotional talking to my about my mother because I, I don't know if she really knew that by just being supportive of the things that I liked, although she didn't understand and think it would be a real job, it was she was providing me what I needed. And, and all of those things are things that I still build upon right now. Academically, though, I, I never majored in anything uh, related to arts until very recently. I'm getting my I'm walking in May. I'm getting my master's uh, from the Frost School of Music at the Congratulations. University of Miami. Thank you very much. Same school that Drake did his God's Plan uh, video and gave out some scholarships. I didn't get one of the Drake scholarships, but I got a different scholarship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but I'm getting my master's in live entertainment management from them. But I, my bachelor's is in, is in marketing. Um, and originally, my, my uh, degree major was accounting. So something super practical. But clearly from my personality, I would have been like the most talkative accountant ever. Um, and it was really when I, unfortunately, my mom got, got ill when I was in college. I did my first two years at Temple University, which is a great experience, transferred back home and commuted into Baruch College in Manhattan. And it was at Baruch College that I became part of 
the school radio station. And, you know, um, there was a, a young man that I met there who was coming back to college. So he was like a non-traditional student. He worked at Viacom and he was white and he wanted to do a hip hop show. And he was like, well, I can't host a show. And so I was the host of the show. So I, I was hosted something called New York rap. This is back in the day when cross colors was big. And so they would dress me <laughs> for it. And, um, and it was that, you know, I mean, today it would be like a YouTube show, but back then nobody really had, this is the early nineties again, dating myself. Um, so nobody really had these things. So we were able to access people that you wouldn't necessarily be able to access. And I also have got my first job in the, the field during that time. My first job was director of media relations for Planet Rock Music. So I took that train down to Allerton Avenue, um, Metro North, got off, walked up the hill, I think it was the five, and then took it over to Allerton Avenue, um, Jazzy J Studio above the H&R block in the Bronx. Now, people who know that are listening to your podcast are going to be like, oh, she's real, because I, I know about that. But yeah, that was my first real gig in the space. What was in your CD booklet at the time? You know, now we say playlist, but what was in your CD booklet? What were you playing? Well, first of all, this like predates all that. But, um, you know, at the time, you know, I really am from this really kind of eclectic time. Right. If you uh, there was this this uh, thing going on TikTok recently talking about 80s kids and Gen X and like the mix of music. So I was into all the things I love new wave music. Right. So I love uh, Tears for Fears as much as I love Public Enemy. Right. So I was listening to all of those things and the full spectrum of things. I have to tell you, it was a it was a white kid in my high school that introduced me to um, Public Enemy, and then when I went to college to NWA. So I had the full spectrum of music, and then of course all the things that my mom raised me on, which is the seventies R and B. So. I still listen to all of that. And my teens uh, are into all of the things that I'm into too. So I will rock out right now just as much. It's funny. If you asked me back then, it's the same as asking me now because my car tells on me. Cause you know, if you go on <laughs> and it says you have most played. So one time my most played was dirty South. Okay. Okay. And some uh, uh, Broadway. <laughs> So it was like, because I was a kid that was in all those things. I sang, I danced, I acted. I was in every school musical, right? I was in the orchestra and the band with flute, and I sang. So I, it's not just one genre. So easily, you can be in your car and straight out of Compton could come on. Then after that, the Hamilton soundtrack can just immediately right after. It's the most chaotic thing when it mixes it. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is this is chaos. But yep, mm-hmm, sure enough. Good old-fashioned shuffle listener. That's, that's what I like to call it. Good old-fashioned shuffle listener. Yeah. So you you get this gig, director of media relations. Is that what you said mm -hmm. earlier? On okay. rock music, early okay. 90s. So what's that experience like? Because this is still during a time where these are not known careers. So you're, you know, you're in that pioneer era. Yeah. I mean, well, listen, I mean, I could write a whole book on the the misogyny part, right? Because I was still a woman in hip hop mm -hmm. in those early days. But it was really fascinating. I mean, I can remember going to um, Tom Silverman, who created Tommy Boy Records, has something called New Music Seminar. And I remember going to New Music Seminar representing 
uh, uh, Planet Rock Music a couple times. I remember one year though, NWA had broken up. So Easy e comes in separate from Dr. Dre. I remember seeing a very tall person who also had a public access show. And I wasn't sure, is that a man or a woman? It was RuPaul, right? Who is a mogul right now. So it was, it was, um, I remember one year that, um, uh, oh my gosh, um, um, Ice T, who's also a member of Zulu Nation, um, had Body Count. So that was probably, again, in the early 90s, Body Count was his rock band. And I remember going to a club and, you know, tagging along with them and the person at the door saying, okay, well, who are your people? And he, and I'm counted in the list. I'm like, yes, I'm in, you know? So, so those are, those are some really great. And now to think about how a lot of those folks went on to become household names. Like at back then, we just knew who they were, right? Now, you know, um, I also just to name drop a little bit, just recently com uh, completed a four-year term as the president of the board of Rush Philanthropic Arts Foundation, which was founded in the mid-90s by Danny Russell and Joey, aka Revron Simmons. Um, and uh, Ice-T donated his time to us in these auctions, and he sold for $20,000. This man bought Ice-T, an opportunity with Ice-T for his wife to be on the set of um, the SVU. And it's not the person that you would think like, yeah, yeah. So for me, it's it's amazing to have been part of like these heady days of of hip hop, especially. I, I, no, you know, no offense, but I still think you feel it. You you being a little bit too humble. Because let me let me just point something out that for those who might want to do their research, you were hanging around Ice T when he was actually had a target on his back. Because when he was with Body Count, he had recorded the song Cop Killer. Mm -hmm. And even the president was being upset. And I, I tell my mentees to this day how there was an era where hip hop is a culture. It was literally under attack. It was a us versus them. And you didn't know. It seemed as if they could take it away. I mean, there were reverends that were running over CDs with bulldozers. I mean, it was a real thing. And here you are walking in with them because, yeah, hip hop was still known under a selective few. But Ice-T himself? It was considered extremely controversial. This is long before the years of SUV. <laughs> like this is long before those years. I mean, but but Chuck D and Flavor Flav and um, you know, all of them, right? You know, I got a I got an opportunity to work with all of them in the early nineties. Um, for for uh Chuck, he had a clothing line called Rap Style. So I was his director of marketing for for Rap Style. And um, and I would place the clothes on the television shows. And that's when Steve Harvey had a sitcom. Um, so I was sending it to Martin, to the Steve Harvey show and all of that. And so, you know, I tell my kids now, my kids are just like, oh, you just know everybody. You know, they're, they're not impressed, right? <laughs> they're just not impressed. But their friends are, they point out. Their friends are impressed, but they're not impressed. Um, when my 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 now 13, I can't believe my baby's 13. She had said to me, oh, I'll never be impressed. If only if you get Beyonce. I'm gonna tell you, my last job at uh, as uh, president and CEO of Newark Symphony Hall, we had to turn Beyonce down. She contacted us, didn't tell us it was her, but I found out it was her. And I'm glad I didn't officially know because I still would have had to turn her down. She wanted to do like some photos 
or what we now know was Renaissance, but we had graduations happening. This is Newark Symphony Hall. Those mama, mommies and daddies, they did not care that Beyonce wanted to do her photo shoot. They want to see their babies graduate from middle school and high school. So I came home and I was like, guess what? <laughs> you know, she's like, Ugh. So, <laughs> so, so my kids are just not impressed at all. When did the work become more about the community for you? What was that transition? <laughs> Thank you for asking that, because I, I think if you look at all the things that I've done, it's always been about the community for me. Um, you know, when I was a uh, director of development for uh, a black woman uh, interior designer, her name is Courtney Sloan. And um, Courtney at the time and still does had all the clients. Right. Again, this is in the late 90s. So we had, uh, you know, he calls himself P. Diddy now. And that was the beginning of his P. Diddy beginning of the P. Diddy era. era. Um, we had Queen Latifah, we had Damon John, et cetera. And um, not them, but some athletes that I won't name would come in and ask us to do these big, amazing, fancy houses for them. And Courtney and I, uh, and I have to credit Court, we were trying to sell them on, hey, there's this land that you can buy to do some affordable housing, right? Some community sort of development stuff. So that's why um, after I left Courtney, I did start a business called NLB Development with a friend of mine. And we had a program we called Back Home, where we work with athletes and entertainers on real estate projects in their hometown. And my first, our first client in New Jersey was Troy Vincent. He was playing on the Eagles at the time. He's now executive vice president of the NFL, Troy Vincent. But at the time, he was an Eagles player. And I, and it was in that relationship that the mayor of Trenton recruited me to be the head of economic development for the city of Trenton. And I would like to think it was the first time that Dana Owens, AKA Queen Latifah, actually toured a town interested in doing real estate development. She now has done it in a big way in her hometown of Newark, New Jersey. But I was touring around her project manager back in 2003, 2004, so, excuse me, 2004, 2005. So that time is, cause I didn't actually know economic development was a career, right? And so now my life's work is about community development, economic development through the lens of arts and, and entertainment. I have to ask you, these are some pretty, in that time period, trailblazing moves. You know, was there, anyone, we have several examples now, but was there any kind of example, blueprint, someone who you were looking at from across the room or from afar that you were inspired by on this road? No, I mean, one person, which most people will be like, huh? There's one woman. Um, her name is Mary Schmidt Campbell. She recently retired as president of Spellman, a job she didn't set out to do. She went to help them out during retirement. and she. But Mary Schmidt Campbell... I'm gonna tell you, I have a meet Mary Schmidt Campbell, which I'm friends with her son. So it's it's I was I, I'm like I would be crying like people meeting Michael Jackson. Mary Schmidt Campbell um, was the uh, director of the Studio Museum in Harlem when I was like eight or nine, and I remember seeing this black woman in the newspaper talking about the New York Times moving the Studio Museum from above a storefront into its own building. So she, I believe, was a trailblazer in terms of 
that infusion of the arts and community development because here she was doing something in Harlem, right? In a place that a lot of people weren't thinking about doing stuff back then. I mean, this is the 80s now that we're talking about, um, late 70s, early 80s. But other than Mary Schmidt Campbell, no. <laughs> was there like a feeling that was in you in that sense of just, of, wait, did you have this outlook, this plan? I didn't have a master plan. I'm, I, I know I had a, a binder of women that inspired me, um, especially when I was in college. So this is probably 1990, 1991. It had people in it like Madonna, like Oprah, like Martha Stewart, and Mary Schmidt Campbell. <laughs> so so um, I knew that I always was passionate about brand, so branding, um, about arts and culture um, and community development and advancement of women and black and brown folks. So those are the things that I always knew that I was passionate about. I didn't necessarily know that I could create a career doing that, but that time period running economic development for the city of Trenton, which my big project was one that Magic John, a company that Magic Johnson was involved in, but it never happened, but it made the cover of every paper. Um, it was a $50 million project. That number keeps coming up, 50 million. Um, there must be something to that. Um, but no, I did not know that I would be able to do this. And then when, my, unfortunately now, my late husband and I developed Miss Harlem in New York City, which again, people didn't think it was could work, right? You know, it was the cover of the New York Times art section. It was a for-profit business that what had three theaters, um, a restaurant, a cafe. Um, and the first, my very first Instagram post back then, I guess this was 2012, was a picture of Ava DuVernay and us because we had screened her film for award contention. So yeah, nah. I know I'm like giving you these long answers just to go, no. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 I feel like no, that is totally fine because I I'm just a believer that there are certain things when it comes to being a creative in your soul that you don't necessarily know what your life is going to look like. You you are kind of creating it, you know. And one day somebody's gonna look at your blueprint. And then they're they're probably going to be closer to that than you have, because you you're going you you're taking these opportunities and you're you're going with it and you're going with your heart, which is a beautiful thing. And it's not as easy as people may think it is because they look at these jobs like fun jobs. When you name the artists that you work with and the people that oh that it looks fun, but there are some unorthodox nights, some long hours, and I'm pretty sure <laughs> that you can write a book about. Yeah, literally. I'm actually under contract to write a book about community development that I still haven't delivered my proposal. You know, I, I didn't mention just the create more of the creative side. How we bought our first home was we wrote a book on Black history. We were, uh, but in a graphic novel format. We were um, in the early 90s, uh, one of the first, and when I say we, this is my husband, then my boyfriend and I, we had an independent comic book company called Pazro Comics. And I was the publicist, right? You know, because that's what I did for uh, Africa Mabada. So I figured I could do it for, for my boyfriend, um, who wasn't my boyfriend because he thought I was too young for him. But that's another story. And we got into the New York Times and the New York Times contact. We were in the Source magazine. We were um, got into the New York Times and we sold a book for six figures and we bought a home in, in Princeton, New Jersey, which is where I'm doing this podcast from right now. And... Um, 
but that was an opportunity to see how creativity could contribute to um, a, a profession. You know, all the artists that we hired went on to professional art careers. We get, we hired uh, young brothers because that's what they were mostly from Brooklyn and Newark, and now they are artists in their own right. So there is no blueprint. Um, but I know that there is an interest in this because I decided to start a newsletter on LinkedIn called Arts for Economic Development that is going to cover all of these things. And all I did was put a uh, welcome to Arts for Economic Development. And I think I'm already up to 1,200 subscribers. So the fact is people are interested in this as a topic. And I'm very clear about the space in which I'm looking at this, which is Black and Brown folks, just from my graphics, you know, this is not going to be some you know, it's, it's us. Right. Um, and I hope maybe I should sit down and figure out how to kind of write this out as a blueprint. Right now, what I do is I mentor people. Um, I'm mentoring. I've been mentor in something called Women in Music. I've been a mentor in something called Diversify the Stage. Um, I got to give a shout out to Noelle Skaggs. She's an incredible Black woman who, during the pandemic, inspired by George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, created this really national initiative to diversify the, the concert industry. And I've been a, a mentor in that. And now I'm mentoring a young woman, um, Bree Steves, who is an incredible recording artist. Um, from Philly, rapper, right? From Philly. Yeah. Um, rapper, singer. I remember her song. Oh my God. Jealousy, right? Like, yeah. Everybody yeah. And, um, you know, I was connected with her because she has this idea for a business that is, I would say, in service to the community. She wants to create a business that helps. She is creating a business that uh, is an institute that will provide education for someone like her, you know, like that didn't know anything about the business of the music industry. And now, you know, she's opening for Kendrick Lamar, her, all that. She's working on her latest album. I'm very proud of her. So being able to, to mentor folks in this space is what I get fulfillment from. Now, I was fortunate in a sense where this is where college opens up for you. Because I had a roommate, one was from Brooklyn, that was my New York introduction. And I also happened to have the other roommate was from Roxbury, was from Boston, like no lie. So I have to ask you, because if I didn't have this roommate, I had no reason to go to Boston. What <laughs> yeah. happened with you in that shift where your eyes became focused on Boston and not just Boston, but Roxbury? Let me tell you, I've told this story so much now that anybody that's listened to this that has heard me say this before, it was not the plan, right? There was a, a, a gentleman who it was retired as a professor at Harvard uh, Business School a few years ago. He called me, I'll never forget, it was August 12th, called me up and gave me this 10-minute speech about a project that they're doing in Roxbury, which is a campus, it's a campus that has all these things on it. And then he says, yeah, we want to have a, a cultural hall on it and we want you to run it. I was like, nah, I'm, I'm raising $50 million for this current job. <laughs> this current job. I told you that $50 million. Raising $50 million. I'm in a city, um, Newark, New Jersey, that has a not only a Black mayor, but an artist mayor and Raz Baraka. Um, we are doing some incredible things, restoring Newark Symphony Hall why would I go to Roxbury? Like I was familiar with Roxbury because of New Edition. I will say I, I was familiar because of New Edition, 
But other than that, I was like, why? And then the more, and also if I didn't mention how um, Beyonce became aware of us is that we also at Newark Symphony Hall um, had a partnership with Waco Theater Center, which is a, a nonprofit art center her mom uh, co-founded in LA. And so they were coming actually in a few weeks after this call for a film festival. And that would have been like her third trip um, as part of this partnership. And I'm like, nah, I can't take that job. I can't, I can't. And the more I talked to other friends and um, I talked to a mentor to me uh, who said, you got to look at that. That's an opportunity to create a new institution and to really do what I had always wanted to do with Miss Harlem. Miss is now closed. When my husband passed away, he was the founding CEO. Um, unfortunately, the, the partners at the time, I would like to say, did not see my value to stay on with them. And uh, we were the minority owners. And so I chose to, rather than just be in name only marginalized to no longer work with them and is now closed. So it was an opportunity for me to really do this. And in my total vision, they gave me total control. They said, you can create your own board. You can do whatever you want there. They were like, we just want to have this as part of our concept because they have this, uh, it's a STEAM concept. And these are all Black developers too. So they have life sciences. They're going to have this uh, this plaza that has restaurants that are from the entire diaspora. And so I accepted the job. And then after accepted the job, I, I said to Richard Lawson, um, who's the co-founder of Waco and Miss Tina's husband and someone I had a crush on. Everybody knows it. I had a crush on him in the eighties when he was on Dynasty, romancing Diane Carroll. Um, I went back to Richard. He's also become, in my mind, a mentor to me too. And he said, Tanisha, people aren't building places like this anymore. You go out there and you do this thing. And I said, and you're going to come with me to this one too, right? <laughs> and they say, say yes. So, um, so that's how I got to Roxbury. And then come to find out that my business partner, the one that I mentioned earlier, Keith Brown is his name, that we started that business where Troy Vincent was our client. His wife is from Roxbury. Now, everything that I'm conscious of. People are like, oh yeah, we're from Roxbury. We're from Roxbury. I'm like, oh, everybody's from Roxbury. Yeah, it's the black place. It is. I mean, I spent a spring break there when I was at Howard because of my roommate. And let me tell you, and Ghost is probably going to mute this, but that's okay. I had fun. There was some. There was, they were some real. Like it was. It was. It was a good time. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you. It was, and I went there several times. Where are you from? Detroit. Detroit. Oh, so I'm. Yeah. So I'm from a black town, black city, you know, all of that. And so it wasn't until on a personal note, until I got to college, when I started understanding that some of these areas that the rappers were shouting out, they were shouting out their neighborhoods. I didn't know New York, in a sense, was majority this. And Nas and them was talking about their talk, their neighborhood. You know what I mean? So I'm coming from an area that's black everything. And I'm like, oh, What's going on? You know what I'm saying? And so I'm starting to understand it's not a lot of us that have these towns and these areas. And Roxbury was one of those areas that really stood out to me. So when I read that, I said, man, I got to ask her about that. And, and, and especially with the Nubian Square and that history of that. Can you expound on that for those that don't know? So Nubian Square was Dudley Square. And um, several years ago, there was a movement to change the name, to really reflect the people that are there and to honor the people that have, have been there. Um, and so I thought that was actually kind of courageous on the part of government to embrace this, this idea of Nubia, right? Um, especially, let's keep it 100, a place that most people don't think of as very accepting to Black people, and that's Boston. So that was something else that, I, frankly, I had to check in 
because when I told people I was taking this role, they were like, you moving to Boston? You know, most people don't realize that Boston is actually not just Roxbury, but Boston itself is as black as it is. Boston is 25% black. And you would not know that from the popular culture depictions. There's been essentially an erasure of the blackness. So for me to, uh, to be able to, and I come in unapologetically black, like, like anybody that meets me. That's why, you know, I was telling to my daughter, uh, again, my baby, I have two. I have to shout out both of them, uh, Imani and Naima. Imani's my, my big girl. She's 16 and Naima's 13. I always wear, primarily, if you ever see me in pictures or whatever, um, I have African prints, right? And I say I do that, even if it's a suit. This is sort of European cut suit, but it's an African print. I said, because I want people to know where I'm coming from, even before I open my mouth. And then she was like, mommy, I think they know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but um, to be a part of, of this, and they created a, a Roxbury Cultural District as well. I'm just really excited. But in conversation with other people outside of Massachusetts, Boston, Roxbury, they also have emphasized to me how important this is nationally um, to be creating a place that is dedicated to uh, Black and Latinx culture in the environment that we're in, especially right now. Um, is hugely, hugely important. And I do not take it lightly. Um, I'm going to shout out another organization that I'm affiliated with in Brooklyn. Um, that is the Billie Holiday Theater, which just won the National Medal of Arts. I'm the board treasurer. Um, the National Medal of Arts is the highest honor that you can get in terms of arts. The, the president puts it on you. And we recently won that. And um, uh, uh, Blondell Pinnock, who is the CEO, accepted it. And she talks in her remarks often about how the Billy is one of the last remaining theaters from the Black arts movement in the nation, right? And so that's why I think it's important to create this new institution that endures, that goes on um, as well. I, I got to say, I mean, that's the first time when they made the change in Nubian Square, that's the first time I ever saw like a reverse gentrification because usually they come in and they rename our neighborhoods. Right. In, in in DC, there's an area called New York Ave and they renamed it Noma. Like I left DC and came back. I'm like, what the hell is Noma? And most of the black people are like, what the hell is Noma? Like usually it's the Christopher Columbus, you know, in, in that. But it seems like Boston took a Masa Musa approach by first of all, Nubian and it's like, Boom. It doesn't get no blacker than that besides saying, hey, this is black town. You know, it doesn't get no blacker than that. Can you break down the history of the Greater Roxbury Arts and Cultural Center? Yeah. So the history, we're making that history right now. Um, the nonprofit was formed last year specifically to develop this. Uh, it was formed by a gentleman by the name of Richard Taylor, who is a noted a uh, real black real estate developer, and then they proceeded to seek to recruit somebody for the whole year uh, to run it, and that's how it's me. Um, it, right now, we just completed our the conceptual design. We have an architect that I haven't public announced, but I'm gonna tell you, uh, she's a Puerto Rican uh, sister who uh, we've hired to be our architect. And she has this incredible presentation on the connection of Nubia to what we're doing from an architectural standpoint. I'm still developing our programming right now. Um, we have a, a real uh, uh, commitment to the Black and Latinx community. Um, and so we're making that history 
as you and I speak. Next week, I'm going to be announcing our first uh, resident dance company. We are also going to be announcing a, uh, a film festival that has been in uh, uh, Boston for 25 years. Again, since I haven't officially announced it yet, I'm not going to say the name, but let's just say it has the name Roxbury in it, but it's never actually had a place in Roxbury. <laughs> but, you know, but once again, I think the reason they named it Roxbury was to signal who they're for, right? And we're going to be offering a permanent home for them as well. I will also tell you that the building will cost $35 million, um, that the city wants us to break ground next year, which means that has to be the fastest fundraise that ever happened in the entire history of fundraising. Um, I do have a couple that has been our first mover as a seven-figure gift um, that was cultivated by the, uh, the the developer who formed the nonprofit. I can't really take credit for that, although they are my people now. Um, and I'm also cultivating some other donors because I want to have the black community to have some ownership in this as well. And I'm starting a partnership with the New England Blacks in Philanthropy to create um, uh, a fund that is really funded by us so that we feel as we are building this monument to black culture in Nubian Square that we had a hand in it as well. And I, and I also just want to, I know I just keep giving you these long answers. Let me tell you, I'm going to do a, a town hall meeting on Monday um, with, I specifically sent it out to uh, uh, artists of color. There's a list that we have. And I'm using this um, this uh, tool that is also my sort of fundraising tool to send out the tickets. But I was very clear. I said, listen, it's free to come to this town hall. It's going to ask you to do a ticket. It says free. It's going to probably give you a fundraising message. You do not have to donate. This is the purpose of this is for me to hear from you. These folks want to have me crying in the middle of the night when I see fun donations coming in at $100. And these are artists. You know, these people don't make my, a lot of money, artists and arts administrators. So the passion that folks have for this is is so heartening. And I'm, I'm really excited to be in such a welcoming community. You know, and shout out to you for mentioning that you had a crush on Richard Lawson, because I've had a crush on his daughter for years. So we OK. <laughs> Bianca, I know. I just, Bianca, I, yeah, we, we OK. We OK. And um, I, I'll tell you how far back it goes. I mean, she's part of the second class of Saved by the Bell. I mean, the show wasn't that good, but I was watching her. It was totally fine. But as I was watching that, and I remember watching Moesha when I was growing up, they had these areas they used to go to and they hang out at and they can perform as as teenagers. And, you know, even though I was in a black town, I'm in the city, I was like, yo, what, what area do they have where they could just kick it and hanging out? Can I have kind of a two-part question with this one. Can you explain the value of cultural centers in the neighborhood? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, it was, uh, there was a community center. It wasn't a cultural center. So it had a gym, it had all those things. And, but we, you know, we had our little talent shows and there's and, and things there too. Um, there, there isn't a place like that in Roxbury. Um, and so, you know, I imagine that this is going to be a place that is for kids. Kids are going to be able to come and take classes and things like that. But they also perhaps see their first professional concert 
there as well with artists because we're going to have a full-on theater there. So again, the composition of this building, it's a visual and performing arts center. So we have a main stage theater, we have two rehearsal spaces, and we have two visual art galleries on e at each entrance of the building on either side of Washington and Eustis. I think bringing culture into that community where they actually see themselves rather than, you know, you, you taken out of neighborhood and sent to museums and see mostly people that don't look like you, right? I think it's really important whether you are a child or an adult that you are centered. And the idea that we are going to center them in their community is enormously important from a value of agency. It's going to be a platform for I have to call it talks and thoughts, so social justice conversations as well. And the, the idea we're going to be hiring people from the community as well as economic development. So those are all part of our values. Um, and of course, presenting great arts and entertainment as well. That's why it's important. Social justice, agency, economic development. So in the second half of that question, we see every day what they're doing in schools. They're stripping away the the arts in schools, can you explain or expound why that is something when it comes to having creative areas in schools? Why does that go? You know, why is that valuable? Because they seem to just not care. It's almost like math, English, and that's all that matters. I mean, in, in a minute, I almost feel like they're going to cut gym in a sense. Listen, it is so crazy. Um, and, and it's funny because they're going to be like, you're quoting your, your daughter. Yeah, I'm about to quote my 16 year old because she is a finalist for a, a governor's award in arts education in New Jersey. We, we're still in New Jersey until the school year ends. And they asked her for a quote. And I hope I can find this. And if I can't, I'll just paraphrase what she said. But she talked about, I said, what is your, what do you think about, uh, arts education? And she said, um, it's important because it gives us our imagination that we keep through our entire lives, right? It, it, it has you look at things from a different perspective. I'm not sure if you know that there are now, uh, there's an initiative to actually bring art into disciplines like accounting, like engineering, where they're taking these adults, professionals, and taking them to museums so that they can look at things from a different perspective, right? And I think it might be because of what you said, that trend of taking those sort of of things out that expand your imagination and have you think about things from a different perspective. Innovation is imagination. And if you're only just teaching two plus two or two to the two degree, you're not necessarily giving them the imagination that they need. And you're, you're talking to someone who loved math and science as a kid. But again, science is also about imagination, right? You can't discover new things if you're not taught how to think differently. And that's the kind of thing that I think music that I think uh, visual art and even painting and dancing, all of those things where you're uh, uh, activating all of your senses helps you expand your imagination. That's why it's important. I, listen, you preach it to the choir. I, I just want—I just wanted somebody else here because they get tired of me because you know I went to a few high schools and I remember the first two high schools I went to. They only had—they specialized math, you know, science and athletics, right? And my grades was terrible. I wasn't a good student 
And then the last school I transferred to was really big in arts. And honestly, my grades went from a one point something to a three point overnight to the point where my mom thought I had hacked the computer system. So I'm like, when did I ever become this person that's hacking computers? We don't even own a computer. And my mother really thought that, but it was about the fact that I had art in between those things that helped me with my academics. So I, I advocate for the arts, even though I play sports, but something about the arts for me just has always been different. So that fact that there's someone who's out there champion that, I just want to say personally, thank you with that on the side, you know, period. For sure. I'm going to quote her exactly. This is Imani Laird, age 16. Arts education nurtures creativity among children and helps us keep our unlimited imagination for the rest of our lives. And I just was like, I love that. Job well done. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way I would have been able to articulate that at that age. For sure. She also had to write, by the way, give an artist statement. And I said, why do you create your art? She says, I create when I see a problem in the world and want to motivate people to find a solution. I hope my art can contribute a little bit to making the world a better place. And I love that because I think that that's probably why I do the things that I do from a community development perspective. I just hope that my work uh, that I get paid for, um, but also the work that I do that I don't get paid for, that I volunteer for, can help make the world a, a better place. But also just by existing, I hope that I'm an example for an, an, another little Black girl who might be sitting in her room imagining the things and being part of a world that she just could not ever imagine herself being in. When um, they did a reception for me at the uh, Gardner Museum in Massachusetts, which is a legendary museum. Um, it's also where there's a, there was a, the biggest heist ever in art history. Half a billion dollars in art was stolen in the 90s. And to be the little girl whose mother cleaned houses and cleaned other people from the day she, from babies to adults till the day she died, to be standing in that space, I want people to know that it's possible that your dreams are can come true. You know, with you saying that, I have to ask you, what's been the most challenging in your personal journey? Has it been the face of sexism or the face of racism? You know, I think um, I think both of them, both of those isms contributed to this sense of um, as I got older, because it was interesting when I was younger, I could think I would do all the things. But I think as I, I got older, there was uh, this idea of do you belong? Right. You know, do you belong? And one of the things that I I love because I watch my children and they navigate spaces as if they belong. And I realize it's because they are centered in terms of my world. When we go visit things, like I joked, we were at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I texted a colleague in Boston saying, oh, yeah, we're at the Met looking at all the black things. Right. So they are centered um, and they are they're growing up in a place in a time where they have had a black president. Uh, they have a, 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 a woman of color as vice president. For me, the toughest thing had been thinking and knowing that I could do it alone, whether it's raising myself up um, out of poverty, which I didn't really do alone because I was with my husband since I was 21. Um, but also when he died, knowing that I would have to raise my children alone, 
Um, didn't talk about it because it's uh, in this conversation, but I also got diagnosed with breast cancer uh, three years ago. So for me, just the 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 idea of of the the isms that you you said, when I see it in front of my face, it actually motivates me. It's kind of a weird thing, but it motivates me to just keep going because um, I want to be that example for my girls. First, I want to say sending you all love on your healing journey continuously, physically and emotionally with the things that you've mentioned. And thank you for sharing that. And I only have my last two. And how valuable for you with everything that you've learned in your experience has mentorship been? Because you work with organizations such as the Women in Music and Diversify the Stage and the Princess University of Grad Futures Program. How valuable has that been for you? So I don't think I benefited from obvious mentorship until I was a little older, a little bit further along in my career, which is probably what motivates me to be a mentor, right? Um, But I will say that it was my nonprofit career journey where I had my first mentorship experience, and it was a white man. And um, I think having that white man see me as a per- see me in a way that most don't, and see me as a person that could run this organization, Trenton Downtown Association, Trenton, New Jersey, when I had never run a nonprofit ever. Uh, I think that has been enormously important. And now I collect them, right? I was just on the phone with my mentor, Karen Robinson. She's at Yale University, an incredible Black woman. Um, you know, I just already mentioned Richard Lawson. I might as well mention Richard Wesley because they've been buddies for like 40-something years. Richard Wesley wrote Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, some classic movies. He's a professor at, at Princeton University. Um, so now it's real important. I just collect them. <laughs> Even at my advanced middle age, I got to call them and say, hey, you know, because they've been here on this earth much longer than me. Um, They've been through all the things. And so it's incredibly important to not only receive mentorship, but also to give it. That's dope. So before we go, I I have to do this because you've mentioned it. And so let's 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 get to the money. First, you mentioned the 50 million that you're trying to raise. Let's give us some information on that and how we can support as a community. Oh, for sure. So please, G-R-A-C-C-B-O-S-T-O-N.org, grokboston.org. You can go there. You can become a member for $25, right? Um, I'll take all, all donations. Somebody donated $10 a few weeks ago. And I think he was so surprised that, because it was my very first online donation after setting up the thing. I was like, thank you so much. <laughs> um, but you can definitely support at, at any level that's meaningful for you. Um, you will be a charter member and part of history. Um, but also tell people, because what I'm, I'm going to need to get most of this money from 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 big places, right? Foundations, uh, very wealthy individuals. Anybody know Robert Smith or Oprah or anybody like that? Tell them, send them my way. <laughs> um, but just, just send uh, good thoughts. And if you are so inclined, please do become a member of Grok Boston because you will always be a charter member and be memorialized in the things that we list permanently in our venue. And is there a place that we can go where we'd be up to date on the progress of it. 
That's right. You can also sign up on our email list as well. But I also now, now understand I'm still a, 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 a organization of one. I have an application in right now to get funding to add staff. But right now, if you see something put on social media, it's me. Um, but you can support us again, G-R-A-C-C-B-O-S-T-O-N on the platforms. So that's Instagram, that's Facebook, and that's LinkedIn as well. Okay. And, you know, let's your social medias and how we can follow you. Cause I know I've been following you a little bit and I see you, you keep people up to date. So, okay, you know, yeah. that's so funny that you're following. I forget that it's like a thing that people actually do follow you. Um, so I am, uh, either my first name, T A N E S H I A. That's what I am on Twitter, but most of the platforms I'm my whole three names. So that's Tanisha Nash Laird. And I'm assuming there's some show notes so people know how to spell it properly. Um, and I'm there, but actually if you, I think I post so much that if you just put in T A N E, I just pop up. <laughs> I noticed. Um, so yeah, please follow me. Um, you're probably gonna learn a little bit more about my my kids um, and how they troll me than you you probably want. But I do also post about my professional life as well. Oh no, you have that one post as motivation to me about you there in the back. We need you to come to the front. I mean that that one right. And I, I'm only gonna tease that because I want people to go. But the message about being in the back and you need to come to the front and who you need to surround yourself by. And listen, I'm one of those people, personally, if you get to know me, those IG or motivational things, I usually brush them off because I feel like everyone be having some sort of thing to say. So if you can catch my attention, I'm like, we going somewhere here. So just want to let everybody know you're going to be inspired, but also, you know, I want them to be up to date on what's going on. Yes, Jay and listeners, you have a front row assignment. You need to be in the front. I appreciate that. Thank you for telling me. Appreciate that. Well, thank you. This right here has been dope. Like, I didn't know how much I was going to connect with it, but I knew off the top when you gave me that lesson offline, I was like, yeah, we about to get into it. Thank you for all the gems. And, you know, we like to say here when to our first time guests, this is a door, a revolving door. So please come back to tell us about the updates, anything else that's going on or things that you feel like we should just know. We invite you back on here. Please reach out to us. The door is always open for you. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you again for having me. It's been a whole lot of fun. Oh, no, it's been extremely dope. And I'm about to actually hit the follow button so I won't like no stalker because I just had you on my search this whole time. But that's all dope. It's cool. <laughs> it's all good. I appreciate that. That has been it. The History of Being Black podcast. I feel like my blackness has been elevated. Tanisha, I, I hope your blackness has been elevated, but you've elevated mine a hundred times. Much appreciated. As usual, you can hit us up on all social media platforms at The History of Being Black on IG. You can see our episodes, listen to our episodes everywhere where podcasts are, Apple Music, the other ones, Spotify, all the ones that you either pay for or don't pay for. Make sure you follow me on my social medias at Jayhaw Society. As usual, you be blessed for successful, and we'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production.